0: Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morrison Forster, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Welcome, everybody. We're going to go ahead and get started. I'm Suze McCormick, and for those of you who don't know me, I chair our ESG and social enterprise and impact and all kinds of stuff at MoFo. And it is really great to be here again for our fifth episode. We are Teaming with BSR. Full disclosure, I'm on the board of BSR, but more importantly, I've been working with them for 20, 25 years, and they really are the gold standard in advising companies and investors on how to do ESG without greenwashing. And this is the fifth in our series of episodes on ESG influencers, leading transformative change. We are very honored this morning to be joined by Ken Melman, who is a partner global head of public affairs and co-head of KR Global Impact. Um, For those of you who don't know, you're going to hear quite a bit more about it with with Aaron, but KR Global Impact is the firm's private marketing investment platform where they really try to identify and then build value, both for impact and returns to, to the largest global challenges of today. And those are obviously associated with climate change and learning and sustainable living and inclusive growth. Since joining KKR in 2008, Ken has really served as the architect of KKR's responsible investment efforts, helping to create shared value for investors and other stakeholders. He has been focused on purpose for decades. For those of you who don't know, he served more than a dozen years in national politics and government service, including as the 62nd chairman of the Republican National Committee, and campaign manager for President Bush in 2004. He's also served on the highest levels in Congress and the White House. He's currently a trustee of Mount Sinai Hospital. I don't know if he realizes that he and I together when I did the spin out of the for-profit semaphore. He's also on the boards of Franklin and Marshall College, Teach for America, the United Negro College Fund, and Seizing Every Opportunity. He has been very active and in the front lines of the successful efforts to marriage for marriage equality, employment non discrimination, and is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And he and I were both board members at SASB, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board. So today is going to be focused on really navigating the crosswinds, the anti ESG. The claims of woke capitalism, while continuing canu- continuing to advance sustainability and focus on these areas again, where K R is long been focused, areas like climate change and learning and inclusive growth. I am really excited to turn it over to Aaron and to hear Aaron and Ken discuss how K R, how private equity, how private capital can really lead lead the charge in terms of advancing real E S G. Aaron.
1: Thank you, Suze, and uh, thanks for your kind words about BSR. I'm going to reciprocate and say I started my now-closed legal career at Morrison Forster, which is an amazing firm, and so it's great to partner, Suze, with you and the MoFo team on all of this, and Ken, welcome. Thank you. BSR has had the privilege and pleasure of working with you and your great team over many years now, and uh, we're really proud of that association, and find you and the team to be thinking really deeply and, and ambitiously about how to make a sustainability and just and sustainable business a core part of KR's value proposition in 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 all ways. It's a pleasure to have the chance to chat with you here today. Just a note for everyone, we will take questions along the way. You can put them into the Q&A chat. We'll try to take them all, look for them mostly towards the latter half of our time. So Ken, you have, as Sue said, you have had a really interesting and diverse career. Tell us a little bit about your journey from and through the world of politics and now to your role at KR. I think it's great context for the discussion.
2: First of all, Aaron, thanks for the opportunity. And Suze, thanks for inviting us to participate. I'm on the call with two tremendous organizations that do terrific work for the world and for the organizations that they work with. Like you, Aaron, I'm a recovered lawyer. I started off my career, got a law degree, and pretty quickly after that, had some opportunities to work in politics. So between 1994 and 2006, I had a number of different jobs in politics, including ultimately the opportunity to run President Bush's reelection campaign in 2004, having gone to work for him in Austin, Texas in 1999, and then be chairman of the Republican National Committee. And at the end of that, I looked around and I said, what do people do after they've run a presidential campaign? And what I found was a lot of those people were more senior in their careers. I was in my 30s. I really thought to myself, I have grown to the edge of this pot. How do I repot myself in a way that my roots can continue to grow? Uh, as you noted and as Sue's noted, I am someone who's always believed in purpose. It's what drove me into politics in the first place particularly interested in the issue of economic and educational equality and it's what motivated me to go initially work for governor bush before he was president and i really thought to myself what are other platforms that have the opportunity to really create value and also while you're doing that to help make the world a better place and that led me to kkr so for those of you who don't know kkr is in the investment business But we are unlike some investors that are, say, passive investors. A lot of what we do is active investment. We buy companies. We often own those companies for five, six, seven years. And ultimately, we try to improve those companies and grow those companies and make them better. We do that also on behalf of a very important population. If you look at who invests with KKR, uh, very often they are state pension funds comprised, for example, of fire and police or teachers. People that have decided to give their lives committing service to the public and to others. And what I believed when I went in 2008 to KR and I said to Henry Kravis and George Roberts and other colleagues, what I believe today is there's a way you can be better investors in terms of the returns you generate. If you also think about how a particular business operates and what are the public policy, what are the ESG, what are the material issues of its operation around which you can build alignment that creates both increased value, makes the company more valuable, attracts more customers, makes their employees liking working there, opens new markets and protects value, avoids harm to the value and avoids mistakes. And I believe that in many cases is predicated on a deep understanding of public policy and a deep understanding of the stakeholders that are affected by what you do. Having spent some time thinking about that in politics, I said to Henry and George, I think this can be part of determining where we invest as well as how we invest. And that's what I've been trying to do for the last 15 years with BSR as a really important partner.
1: Thanks, Ken. It is a great journey. And I think for some time, there was a sense on the part of some that ESG is what is done, irrespective of public policy and the fact that you bring that lens to it enriches the thinking and is quite valuable. Let's talk, let's lay the foundation also in terms of term, in terms of terminology. There's a little bit of a battle going on. You know, what does the term ESG mean? What does green mean? What does sustainability mean, et et cetera, et cetera. As you exert your leadership at KR, what is ESG or whatever term you would use as the core reference? What does it mean to you?
2: The term I would use is responsible investing and in investing in sustainability. And they're two different terms. And let me explain both. But in so doing, again, I'd like to just open with what our job is, as I mentioned, we're what you might call committed investors. We're investing in companies for longer hold periods. In many cases, we have a majority controlling position in the company. And we're investing on behalf of a very important population. And what we've learned over the last I've only been there 15 years, but what KR is nearly 50 years old has learned is the way we are best investors is by building better companies, is by building companies that are stronger, that are more resilient, that are better over the course of our ownership. And if you want to build better companies, in our experience, it's very important to focus particularly on what do you do to create additional value? So what are you doing as an investor beyond the capital that is making the company worth more? And what are you doing to protect value? How are you avoiding risk during the course of your ownership? And so to me, responsible investing, or ESG, the way we think about it, identifies what are the issues that are material business issues that are material to the particular company that if you handle the right way can create value, and if you fail to address can create real diminution in value. So let me give you a couple examples. One example that we've learned a lot over the years and that Sue has been involved in, Morrison and Forrest has been involved, Aaron, you've been involved, is the benefits to a company if you effectively engage the employees at the company. So that everybody that works at the company, whatever their level, is highly engaged in the broader enterprise. Doing that has a lot of benefits. So for example, one of the biggest things if you talk to a CEO, they'll tell you that they worry about is a high quit rate. Because a high quit rate means you're diverted from creating your product or service into hiring new people training those new people and making sure those new people are fitting into the organization if you can reduce the quit rate you can create more value any ceo will tell you that productivity is incredibly important reducing safety incidents is very important and what we've learned is one way to do all those things is to better engage your employees and one way to better engage those employees is an enterprise that my partner, Pete Stavros, has really built out that involves providing those employees with more voice in how the company operates, providing them with financial literacy so they understand, in fact, how profits are made, and critically, giving them skin in the game. So They have meaningful stock ownership in the business, so that when the business does better, they do better too. That would be an example of, if you're using the ESG terms, an S program, a social approach, that we think can create value. We've seen this, by the way, happen in more than 25 companies with more than 50,000 employees. Another way you can create value in a company, in our experience, is something we started doing with Business for Social Responsibility way back in 2009. And that is avoiding a problem. If you remember Apple and Foxconn, two companies that have huge supply chains, back in 2008 and 2009, had those supply chains disrupted, because they discovered that the factories they were using in China and other markets had real labor and environmental problematic practices. And so if you as a company can make sure you understand that the people in your supply chain are resilient and reliable and are operating under the law, you avoid risk. And so we started an effort with business for social responsibility around what we called re- supply chain responsibility that more than 26 companies helped us create value. So that's a creation of value by avoiding risk that we were able to find. Cybersecurity is really important in companies. And we've seen example after example of companies where there's been a problem. We had a company, we have a company, we have an investment in called Colonial Pipeline. They had a cyber breach. And one of the things we learned from that and even before that was the importance of companies having rigorous cybersecurity practices as part of their governance. So all of these examples are examples I provided of business issues that have a governance component or a social component or an environmental component that smart companies need to operationalize and build into how they diligence an investment and how they govern a company. And it's something we benefit a lot from the work we do with BSR. The second area is investing in sustainability, and that's something that our impact fund does, and that's how do you find products or services? that are very important to customers and that produce benefits not only to the customers, but also more broadly. So let me give you an example. If we were sitting here today with the folks from Amazon or Walmart or almost any other company that ships product, one of the things they would tell you that is problematic is, and it's something we all see all the time, is when they ship you say that tube of toothpaste, if it's an e-commerce delivery, you get a big box and a little tube of toothpaste. And so that means from a bottom line perspective that Amazon or Walmart are paying to ship air. They're filling a whole 747, and they're only filling a third of the seats. And the rest of it is when you get your product delivered is filler. That is very, from a bottom line perspective, bad and dumb. It's also bad for the environment because it means we're chopping down more trees. We're removing more forest. And we can only fit a smaller number of products on a plane or in a truck or on a train. So more shipment means more energy, meaning more emissions. We have a company called CMC Machinery. It's based in Italy, and it uses 3D printing to make a container the exact size of the product. Good for the environment, good for the bottom line of a business. And that's an example of investing in sustainability. And we, over the last number of years, have Invested more than $30 billion in companies as a firm where the investment thesis is, for example, helping with sustainable packaging, or the investment thesis is around the energy transition or energy efficiency. So that's how I would define those two questions. One is how do you improve the company's bottom line and reduce risk by ensuring that it's operating in a way that the risks you're thinking about include risks, whether it's supply chain, And how do you create value by engaging the workforce, among other things? And then how do you look for trends where you can create value for your customers in a way that also creates value for the world? And that's investing in sustainability.
1: So that's very, that's interesting in two dimensions. One is it's very cogent, very comprehensive. The other is everything you mentioned speaks to direct business value. With that in mind, why is it that for some ESG has become so controversial?
2: I think that the controversy that I see falls in two areas, and it's people raising questions about two areas. And ultimately, it comes down to I think people overuse the term, right? So, in some, there's an objection that there's greenwashing. There's an objection that, say, I'm in the business of making a pharmaceutical product, and my pharmaceutical product isn't safe for consumers. But I put out a big statement about how I'm operating net zero and I've got a lot of diversity to me. That's greenwashing. That's using an environmental and a social, very important objective. But I'm not focusing on what matters most, which is what is the potential misalignment around what I do, around my business model? And that's something that ought to be scrutinized. On the other side, there are people who say, wait a minute, company X is out making proclamations. But are they walking their talk, their virtue signaling? So I think the objection comes when people, in my opinion, fail to understand what I think responsible investing or ESG should be, which is frankly good business, but good business using a broad lens that understands all the potential areas of risk to your business and all the potential areas where you can create value. If you across the board can reduce your energy use, (gasps) you're going to have a big impact on dealing with the problem of climate change. You know what else you're gonna have? Big savings in bottom line. We had a company that we used to own called Dollar General. It's a fantastic company. It's hardly a woke company, but it's a company that discovered it was paying a tremendous amount of money to have the corrugated cardboard containers that its products came from, hauled away and shipped to dumps. And so instead, they partnered with an organization And developed a program by which they recycled all that and they got paid for it. That's smart business. That's good bottom line. If you don't like that, then you don't like making a profit. And so that's how I at least think about it. And I think that unfortunately everything's become politicized today, but part of it is people overuse certain terms and they don't appreciate what matters most which is their business model
1: the concept of esg is dead long live esg is maybe a useful one the phrase isn't so useful but the core ideas speak to something that has fundamental value 15 years is a long time in The world of sustainable business, a lot has changed. Is there anything that you feel like you wish you had known back in 2008 or lessons learned along the way?
2: Huge amount of lessons I've learned. And there's a ton I wish I had known. I think the biggest thing that has changed is what the world has learned. In particular, what it's learned, I think in the the changes we've seen in the last three years have been bigger than anything else. So what did COVID teach us? And what did Ukraine teach us? And it taught us a couple of things that are very relevant to what we do. First, it taught us the importance of being prepared, of activities or risks are going to happen and steps you can take to reduce those risks ahead of time. Second, it taught us how important, for example, resiliency and redundancy is in things that are important. So can't we all remember times when we had walked into the drugstore and there was nothing on the shelf? And so the fact that our biotech and that our pharma supply chains were just in time and therefore very efficiency driven, but they didn't help us during COVID is something we all remember. And similarly, how the world came to appreciate during the Ukraine attack, the leverage that a nation like Russia has on the rest of the world because of our reliance on their energy sources. And so what all of those things have done is to create a new environment where we have opportunities to really invest behind some of these themes I've been talking about before. So the energy transition, I don't believe, is only a sustainability-focused opportunity. It also, properly applied, will improve affordability for consumers. It will improve energy security, and it will include resi- improve resiliency because we won't be reliant on more volatile parts of the world, and we'll be able to have homegrown sources of energy, far more distributed. And that's protective. I similarly think there's an appreciation of the importance of cyber hygiene that there wasn't 15 years ago, because of how reliant we are on first technology, but second, because of very high profile cyber attacks that have occurred in the last several years. Another theme that we very much believe in is the importance of investing in the workforce, both through employee engagement, A point I mentioned before, But then also investing in platforms that help with vocational training and the lifelong learning we're going to need. And so, one of the reasons we have this supply chain disruption, one of the reasons last summer that you and I spent hours sitting in airports is there aren't enough pilots and there aren't enough people that repair airplanes. Guess what? Look at our number of nurses today, the number of people getting degrees in nursing, and the needs we have going forward as the baby boomers retired for more people in the medical profession. We have a huge problem coming in the nursing space. Cybersecurity experts, people that can help with cybersecurity, requires a five-year training protocol. And yet, we don't have enough. And so investing in companies that are providing people with lifelong learning, which means learning doesn't stop when you're 22 or 23 or 24. It's throughout your life. You're getting trained. There's certifications you can get through platforms that let you learn, online but then marry that with coaching so that you're also getting the benefits socially of someone that's helping you with that learning so that you can change careers in the middle of your life or you can be upskilled for a job you want all of those are examples of things that i think we've learned over the last several years that are different than before and then i think when when i started along with my partner robert and tablin our impact business the themes we invest behind which are climate action and the energy transition sustainable living, lifelong learning, and inclusive growth. Our thesis was that there were macro trends driving these that in 2025 would be mainstream. And it happened four years ahead of time, I think, in part because of the impact of what the world learned from COVID and what the world learned from the Ukraine.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And the way I think about it, it's a little bit like the intersection of business and society. If you think about it the way you would think a, about a patient the patient has had chronic issues that is structural changes that are happening climate being uh one of them the march of technology being another and then acute issues as well ukraine and cyber as example and pandemic as examples of that it's interesting that you brought up cyber so many times because if you ask people who focus on risks They would have identified pandemic as an evident risk. What kind of pandemic, when, we don't know, but we knew it was a risk. We know that that geopolitical risk is always present and can erupt at various points. We have not had a cyber problem on the scale of Ukraine, on the scale of COVID. And so I think that's the one that's lurking out there that is a clear and present danger that could go beyond anything we've experienced, even with some of the incidents that have occurred. You've talked about employees. I think it's really important. And what I found interesting is there's been so much attention given to white-collar people in the tech sector who are thinking about the nature of their relationship with their businesses. But many of the examples you gave are more in an industrial context. Say a little bit more about that, because it may reorient a little bit the way people on the call might think about that
2: question. Look, I think that if you think about any enterprise, the enterprise is stronger if every single person in the enterprise is thinking every day about what they can do, not just to do their job, but to more broadly serve the customers and achieve the needs of the enterprise. And so, how do you get that done? And if you think about it, we live in a capitalist system. The way you should get that done is by giving incentives to every employee to think like an owner. One of our founders, Henry Kravis, always says, you never wash a rented car. And that's an interesting way to look at it. So, how do you create an environment where people don't think you're just getting paid to work, but rather you're an owner of this enterprise? And again, the three pronged approach that we have found under the leadership of my partner, Pete Stavros, around engaging employees is first real skin in the game so the employees have real ownership and understand that ownership and understand how the company's doing and that ownership is meaningful and by the way that ownership is in addition to what they get so this is not a trade-off this isn't their salaries less this is the salary they're getting is the salary they should get and they're getting a stock interest that is the equivalent of nine to 12 months of ownership the second thing is that they understand what that means. They understand it's real. They get paid dividends. They understand how the company performs and they're regularly and how profits made. And third, they have voice in the company. And I'll give you an example of of what it means. And it's a story Pete loves to tell. So we had a company that we recently exited, very successful investment, got a lot of attention called CHI Garage Door. It's a business that's located in the center of, of Illinois. It's a company that had been owned by previous private equity owners, previous sponsors. When we bought it, people were like, it's been owned by several private equity firms. It's already efficient. How can you make a manufacturing company better? And what Pete understood is the way you can make it better is by engaging the employees in a more fulsome way. And the result was an investment where we made 10 times our money. And one of the stories Pete loves to tell, one of the reasons Pete is such a great investor is because how much he understands what's happening on the ground in the company. So he spends a lot of time, not only in the company, but on the floor, traveling with the company makes garage doors, people that deliver the garage doors to a customer. And he developed a relationship with one of the drivers. And the driver said to him, you pay me by the mile, which is great. And so yesterday you paid me to drive from central Illinois up to Minnesota and back down to Illinois, the next day to Wisconsin and back. And that's great because I get paid more, but that isn't very smart for the company. Why not have me more optimally route myself in a way that you're paying me less for the gas and you're paying me less by the mile, but it'll make the company worth more. So imagine a world where everybody in the company is thinking that way. Not what am I getting today, but what are we building together? It's a whole different mindset. And the idea that's only relevant in technology or in a law firm, that it's not relevant in a manufacturing space. The only people that think that have never worked in a manufacturing space. And so the reality is that's any enterprise, anything that's done well, everybody in the place is an owner and they're treated with the respect of an owner and they're thought of like an owner and they think of themselves like an owner and they have voice in the company. If you believe in the wisdom of crowds, which we do, that's what American society is built around. It applies in every enterprise. And so I think that to me, that's very important. The other thing that's equally exciting is the ability to invest in platforms that improve worker empowerment and engagement. So, let me give you two examples. We have a company that is in the United States called Lightcast. Lightcast is in the labor market data analytics business. That doesn't sound very sexy, but it's really important. What they do is they study essentially what are the trends with respect to job placements, job openings who's applying for those jobs. And then they use data science to look forward and extrapolate out to the future. And that says to them, here's likely to be the jobs of the future and the skills people need in the future. That's important for a lot of reasons. Part of why it's important is there's not a common taxonomy to, for example, what a data analyst does. So a data analyst at Walmart and a data analyst at Nestle and a data analyst at Amazon have three very different jobs. But if you can understand not what person's title is, but what their fundamental skills they need are, then all of a sudden companies and universities can invest much more in upskilling their workers. And then if you can build platforms that help people learn throughout their lives, so you got a job and you got a family to support, and during the day you're working, but at night you're training for something you might wanna do in the future, which the right platform lets you do with the technology and digitization that we have today, there's an ability to empower workers as well. So in our opinion, building the workforce in the future means first equipping them with the skills that are going to be most marketable for the jobs they want, and second, giving them voice and skin in the game in the workforce. And if you do those two things, you not only make the workplace a better place, you solve a lot of other problems. Part of why I think there's so much polarization in our country is that too many Americans feel economically and socially disconnected. They feel economically and socially without a voice. And the idea that someone else's problem is wrong. If any of our fellow citizens feels disengaged, it's all of our problem. And I think these are part of the solution to it.
1: That's so compelling. I'm I'm tempted to ask if you're preparing to return from business to politics. <laughs> that was very well said. It's interesting about jobs. And I think that the firm you mentioned actually is on the cutting edge of things with all the attention, even just since the start of the year on AI due to chat GPT, Eric Brynjolfsson, who's a professor at Stanford, he and his partners looked at, I think, 950 different jobs. And they said, AI is not going to eliminate a single one of them, but they will change absolutely every one of them. And yes. so I think as we, as understanding Breaking down jobs, whether it's a data analyst or something else, to understand how it's going to change, that's actually something that every organization, whether garage door business or a law firm, need, needs to understand because there is zero possibility that our jobs will not change in these ways, which means, as you say, ongoing upskilling. KR, you're acting not only within the bounds of your business, but tell us a little bit, you co-created a, a nonprofit called Opportunity Works on this front. Tell us a little bit about why you did that, because that's a bit of an unusual effort for from KR.
2: Again, this is Pete's brainchild, and he and his wife's generosity that let us launch it, and the firm and myself and a number of other colleagues have supported it too. But the idea is if we really want to take this vision of employee ownership and expand it, to create a center of best practice and a center of excellence, where anyone that's doing it can have a very simple and easy way to understand how to do it. And then people can learn from one another. And it's a very interesting effort that incorporates a number of leading businesses, some leading investors like KR, a lot of leading labor experts, uh, organizations like the Ford Foundation and others that are civil civic society organizations, and brings all of those people together to say, how do we build a community of best practice and a community where people can learn from one another that are engaged in it? And how do we make this easy for people to do? Because Pete began doing this in 2011. This is not easy. And to do it right requires real, meaningful uh, engagement by leadership and management at the company. It requires real engagement with employees. And it requires a playbook based on the lessons that have been learned over the last decade. Of what mistakes we've made. And so, if we can imagine a world where people can learn from one another and avoid some of those mistakes so that it can expand more, that's the vision of Ownership Works.
1: That's great. And I think at BSR, we strongly believe in that as well. The leadership of individual companies is crucially important, but collaborative solutions where that learning can happen is the way you create broader, more lasting, more systemic change. So, I think it's a great, great example. We've talked about employees. Let's talk about governance, because I think it is so crucially important. And one of the things that's undergoing a massive a massive amount of change, we see all sorts of information that increasingly directors acknowledge, recognize the importance of ESG issues. But a lot of the survey data show that they actually don't think they have the skills and experience they need to discharge those duties effectively. I'd like to ask about governance through a couple of different lenses. One is you are an active participant in the governance of many of the companies in your portfolio. So how do you think about that dimension? And then internally, how does governance for ESG work Inside KR, I'd love to hear both of those dimensions.
2: I think the answer is relatively similar, and that is this if you believe, as we do, that the right way to think about responsible investing or ESG is as a business issue, then the business processes that are long familiar to people and that are in place need to also govern how responsible investing and ESG operates. So, what are those issues? First, The board needs to have a regular process of understanding and being informed. After all, the job of a board is to guide at a strategic level a company, to hold its management accountable, to make sure it's operating in the right way. So at KR, for example, we have a process by which the board has designated to the audit committee oversight of responsible investing in ESG, and I report on a regular basis to the audit committee on that, having reported to the board as well when issues come up. Within our companies, we also, in each company, have a process by which, at a board level, there's governance and oversight. Second, important business issues are led by management. And so it's very important that management both say the right things and do the right things on these matters. That's true at KR, and that's true in the companies that we manage and that we govern. It's something that management leads, that it's one of their priorities, that they hold people accountable for, that they speak to, that they make sure that they and the company or walking their talk third if you want something to happen it's not just at a governance level it's got to be on a day-to-day level and so in this case we make sure that it is built into to the day-to-day operations of each of the kr business units and in fact each business unit while there's a common responsible investing policy and there's a common approach broadly it is then for each business, there are differences. And so it's customized and built into each business unit in partnership with the business unit leaders in a way that makes sense. And in the companies I lead similarly, if you're focusing, for example, as we are on uh, making sure you've got the right practices in place regarding employee engagement or regarding diversity, then you wanna make sure that it is deeply built into the human capital department and in their operations. If your focus is making sure that you've got supply chain responsibility or looking at ways that you can understand and reduce potential climate risk, then the operations team needs to be actively involved. They are at KKR and they are in the portfolio companies. And so building it into the relevant business unit, to me, is the third component. Fourth, you need a lot of experts. You need red teams that are going to hold you accountable. I view BSR as an awesome red team. You guys and ladies do a great job of challenging us, and we want you to challenge us. We similarly last year created a sustainability experts advisory committee. It's chaired by Bob Eccles, who's the father of the purpose movement, the original founder of SASB. And it includes experts around climate issues, sustainability issues, workforce issues, data issues. And it includes people that are skeptical of conventional thinking on these matters. The job is to help us be smart by thinking of things that other people aren't thinking and having an intellectually robust debate. And then you need an internal team. And at KKR, we have a team of about 17 people who sit across business units and full-time have particular domain expertise in a component of how we operate from an ESG or responsible investing perspective, similar expertise, not as many people at the different portfolio companies. So to me, that's all how you have, it's business issues. And then you need to be transparent. Are there real KPIs? Are there real metrics? Are there real objectives? And do you report to your investors or your other stakeholders on them? We try to do all those things and we try to do it in alignment with the right third party frameworks. That's the, by the way, part of what Ownership Works does. It's got a framework of how to think about employee engagement, and it's a framework we try to use. If we're reporting on climate risk, we use TCFD as our aligning enterprise. So again, it's business issues and it comes down to if I said tomorrow, Aaron, I've got an idea, I'm going to tell you about KKR's p using a new kind of accounting, Ken accounting that I made up, you know what you'd say to me? I'd like to look at it, but it sounds like you might be being a little bit self-serving. And to me, people that do things that aren't based on an established third-party framework run that same risk. So if you think about the way to think about this, it is a business issue. It is it material to the business. And is it being oversell the way that you have other important issues overseen in the business, overseen, not oversaw? then you're in a much better place.
1: A very comprehensive view. I want to pick up on <clears throat> something you mentioned and that ties to a question we've gotten in the Q&A function, but there's one thing I think if I'm correct, you didn't mention that I'd like to ask about, which is incentives. We are getting on the top 10 list of questions we're getting from our member companies, the question of how short and long-term incentive compensation should be linked to ESG performance. We're hearing quite a lot of that. What role does that play?
2: I think it's incredibly important. It's something we strongly believe in. And so I'll give you two examples. At KR, we have a process that many people are probably familiar with called a 360 review. And the 360 review, we review all of our employees on and we review people on their commercial contribution. We review them on whether they're a good manager and leader. We review them on whether they are consistent with the culture at the firm. And the last several years, there's two other things we've added in. One, do they contribute to the commitment of the firm has to diversity and to inclusion. And by the way, that diversity and inclusion includes not just an individual's background or race or gender, or sexual orientation, it includes different way of thinking. So it includes, when I showed up there 15 years ago, I was very diverse. Most people are investors in the finance industry. Here comes this guy from Washington. What the heck does he know? And so the ability to bring in people to think differently is a critical component of diversity. If a team or a board doesn't argue about things, I'm nervous. I want that argument. But we ask people and we judge them on that. And we also rank people each year as part of the 360 on their contribution to our broad efforts around responsible investing and broad efforts with respect to alignment. So it's something that it's one of five things everyone at the firm is rated on. Then, in many of our companies and in many of our businesses, and for example, in the impact business, the majority of our investments in Fund One. Management of the companies in which we invest in, a portion of their annual compensation is tied to impact and esg metrics and in fund two it will be a hundred percent tied to impact and esg metrics the key is in my opinion to do this in a way that is taking these questions seriously not just literally one of the things i worry about in the sustainability place is people are so focused on reporting or answering questions they miss the forest for the trees so what you want to do is you want to develop a framework that makes sure The areas for which people have responsibility, whether it be an impact metric that we have for a particular company or a metric around ESG responsibility with respect to how a business operates, that individual, their compensation is tied to that, not just to some number that you come up with that really doesn't hold them accountable and align them the right way. I couldn't agree more
1: on that last set of points. It's really important. We've got a few interesting questions in the QA. Thanks, everyone. So let me ask one more that I want to ask, and then I'm going to go to some of the questions. As Suze referenced earlier, you were very active in helping to secure support for the Respect for Marriage Act recently, which is a great was a great step forward. How would you extrapolate from that experience to the broader question that a lot of companies are wrestling with? when do we or when do individual business leaders weigh in on topics that are certainly relevant to business but are more viewed as broader societal questions how should someone think about that
2: so it was an honor to be involved in that effort there were a lot of people that that literally spent their lives working on it so i was lucky to be a volunteer I was, I feel blessed to have been involved. It was something that was very meaningful and important to me. A couple of lessons I would have, and then I'll get to the other point. To me, the most important lesson is first the importance of coalition building. The reality is that was a multi-year, multi-decade effort to build many coalitions. It was very consequential and important that the LDS church, the Mormon church endorsed the particular legislation in place. One of the reasons that endorsement occurred was that for many supporters of equality and the Mormon church had been working together and together developed an approach that actually in Utah, made sure that there was protection against discrimination, as well as a place at the table for people who have traditional religious faith. And coalition building, by the way, does not mean you simply say everyone come in the room and sign a letter. Coalition building means the hard work of sitting down and understanding different people's perspectives on things. And how do you create and how do you forge what is fundamentally a compromise that incorporates different people's views so that everyone has a seat at the table and it becomes more sustainable? Business was an incredibly important ally when it came to the equality for marriage and also non-discrimination space. And again, having a seat at the table allowed business to make suggestions and contributions to how this effort occurred. Bipartisan. This was a very bipartisan effort. The leaders of it were people on both sides of the aisle who disagreed on other things. So all of this says, recognize that the key to success in life is coalition building and a willingness to compromise as long as you're getting some core important things done, and that someone who might disagree with you is not your enemy, they're actually your potential ally. If you view the world as current allies and potential future allies, which is how I think of the world. Then it's simply a question of how do you, in a meaningful way, get to know someone and engage with them and work with them and figure out what matters and what's important to them. And I think that to me is important as any lesson that can come out of this approach. The other lesson and any of us who's gay knows this is the importance of coming out. The most important impetus for change is that people get to realize that their daughters and their sons and their brothers and sisters and their parents and their coworkers and the people that they like and love happen to be gay. And Harvey Milk always said the most powerful thing each of us can do is to come out. Anyone who's watching this who's gay and hasn't come out yet, do it on your own terms, but understand and appreciate how much you change the world simply by that single brave act as an individual that you undertake. And what that does to literally millions of people around the world that'll get, millions of people, you might know millions of people (laughs) but you probably don't. But when many people do it, it touches millions of people. One of the most compelling arguments we made was that there were 1.1 million people living in, gay and lesbian people living in in, in married couples. And how would you feel if you were in their shoes, if you had uncertainty about the status of your relationship? And that made a real difference because those 1.1 million people touch tens of millions of people. In terms of what I recommend to companies or to businesses, I think the first most important thing is to walk your talk. So one of the proudest moments I had at KR happened after the California Proposition 8 was overturned, the Perry case, but before the Obergefell case. And we brought in the chief human resource officers for all of our companies who were interested. We said, it's up to you. And we had a conversation with the Human Rights Campaign Corporate Equality Index, about best practices around how do you ensure before civil marriage is protected that employees that are potentially in a state where there's not marriage have their rights protected and they talked about best practices and one of the reasons that's so powerful and important and it was interesting one of the companies that was there i remember with dollar general which if you look at its stores have a lot of stores in the south and i remember a few About a year later, the CEO of Dollar General, Rick Dryling, who is an awesome leader, an incredible leader, had a session where he brought people from across the company who were part of their pride network and had a session they invited me to where I got to speak along with him. And it was so moving to meet people that were from very small towns where previously they worried about how their neighbors and people thought about them and their employer was saying, you belong here. By the way, that is, you want to retain employees? That is a smart business decision that is good for bottom line. And it's walking your talk. So to me, that's an important component. I think companies that speak out on issues have every single right to speak out and should speak out, but they ought to make sure when they're doing it, it's something that's meaningful. They ought to make sure it's something where they're walking their talk and they ought to make sure that they're doing it in a way that isn't simply a response to what's in the news. But how they meaningfully operate.
1: First of all, thank you for personalizing the story, and also I think I I heard a through line of authenticity, individuals being true to who they are, organizations, companies being true to who they are, and, and the answers get a lot simpler actually if you if they flow from that mindset. Let me ask. We've got some great questions in. Let me ask one that maybe is a decent segue because it also speaks to cultural change the question speaks to the gap that we've seen between millennials and gen z and now gen alpha and older older staff different views on how important esg is do you see that do you think the gap is narrowing how do you think about that
2: as a gen xer i do no one talks about gen x there's the big boomer generation there's the big millennial generation and there are a few of us in between and and we don't get as much coverage. Look. I think that the reality is that what you have today with the millennial generation and younger generations is a generation that was raised at a time where there was much more transparency, much more radical transparency than had existed before. And as a result of that transparency, uh, people understand things that they perhaps didn't understand before. So the Me Too movement was in part driven by the fact that we realized that at many companies in many places, individuals were being abused and treated in a disrespectful way. And so that inherently leads a generation to say, let me understand a company culture. And through things like Glassdoor and others, you can find out about a company culture. And that's something that millennial individuals seem to ask more. But I, as a Gen Xer, I ask it too. I think it's incredibly important. And I think that it's something that A generation that is raised around the radical transparency understands it differently. Similarly, there is an understanding of what's in your supply chain that didn't exist before. So I think the biggest change that changes the world is a change in consciousness. And I think that beginning with the mass media, the television began and then social media has even expanded. There's just more consciousness around these questions than there used to be before. And while there's a lot of noise and there are some negatives, including divisiveness, overall, I think it's good for the system. I think on balance, the fact that people know more and have more information at their fingertips is a net good thing. Now, what's incumbent on each of us to do is not fall on the clickbait trap, right? It's incumbent that each of us, not because we see a headline, uh, we think that means that something's true without having to look through it and really understand it. It also means don't trust social media. The algorithm is messing with your head. The algorithm is reinforcing and confirming your biases. And so it means you need to be, as an active citizen of the world, you need to be a consumer of information that differs from how you think. So everyone watching this today should go out and say, this year in 2023, I'm going to commit to challenge my narrative, my mindset, the way I, the frame I want to put information in with countervailing information, and I'm going to look for websites, I'm going to look for podcasts, I'm going to look for other places I can go. That disagree with what I wish the world was in a way that'll make me smarter about way, the way the world is.
1: We all need our own personal red teams, in a sense. Yeah. Let me. So one last question that I'm going to hand it back to Suze to close us close us out. KR has holdings and relationships globally. We are living during a time when sustainability standards, reporting, not only frameworks but requirements, continue to fragment. How do you think about that? How would you advise companies to navigate a world where there are a lot of cross currents with similar, but meaningfully different requirements in different
2: places? A couple of thoughts. First, I would recommend working with BSR. You all are amazing at helping us. Yeah, it was a setup, but it was an honest answer. Yeah. I would say the first component is. Uh, Having advisors, BSR is one. Another is a company that we invested in, ERM. They're terrific. Advisors that really help you understand the differences in different places. But it comes down to what I started with. What is meaningful and what matters? One of my partners is a guy named Nate Taylor. Nate is, along with Pete, the co-head of our America's private equity business. Terrific leader. And Nate always says, whenever we talk about these issues, let's make sure we're doing something that's meaningful. Mm. And so I think that if I'm advising any of our companies or when I think about it, they KR, don't teach for the test, as they would say in education, what's meaningful to your business? What is your business's meaningful opportunities to create real value by aligning what you do, by, whether it's access to new markets, whether it's saving bottom line, whether it's attracting and retaining better customers, what can you do in those areas around sustainability? Around employee engagement, around diversity, and what do you do to avoid risk in your company? Once you've decided that, use frameworks wherever you operate in ways not to say what are they doing in country A versus country B. You need to understand that. But why does it matter with respect to these questions? What meaningfully helps me improve that so that those third party frameworks can set for us KPIs by which we can measure our success? At the end of the day, responsible investing. And investing in sustainability are no different than other business issues. So, you need to figure out what affects the meaningful performance of your business and how you set up KPIs accordingly. And the great thing about the moment we're in, to your question around the millennial population and many other people too, is all over the world, there are hundreds of millions of people who wanna buy products that are responsibly made and where the supply chain is good, who wanna have energy that is homegrown and isn't enriching Vladimir Putin or Venezuela or somewhere else, who genuinely care about these questions. And if you're serious and thoughtful and rigorous, you can create products and services and you can adjust your operations to help them and you can really do it once you engage your employees. So to me, that's the way I would think about it. And I'd view all those questions around reporting. You need to get that right. You need to partner with your compliance team to get it right. But the higher calling is what I just described.
1: Thank you, Ken. Fantastic. And in a world where there are so many cross currents, I think you made an exceptionally compelling case for the business fundamental reasons, in addition to the broader benefit reasons why this work is so important. Really appreciate your time, really appreciate your perspectives. Thank you. And I'm going to hand it back to you to close us out.
0: Thanks. Thanks so much, Ken and Aaron, that was fabulous. And I just hope everybody who is listening, almost everybody who started ended with us, which <laughs> meant uh, both of you were quite engaging. And those who listen afterwards, because this is recorded, will take away so many of the insights that I did from the discussion. I will just say, I think private equity often gets a bad name in this space Ken, you are a very good example of how this is not greenwashing this is really core to the values of who you are and who your institution is and i just want to say some of the things you're doing and other private equity funds are doing which are really innovative, it's, it is, let's change the scaffolding. Let's think about the structures. Let's think about worker ownership and climate and a lot of these elements in a way to really recast how we think about capitalism really gives me hope. So thank you. And look out for a notice from this space because Erin and I will be back in February with the next episode. Thanks so much. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.